Do you remember how President Trump had a, a thing about strong men and dictators? He, he could not get enough of them. I mean, most famously, there was the very questionable and very public friendship between Trump and Putin. But there were other examples, too. There were his love letters to North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. There was his reported willingness to protect Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a.k.a. MBS, even after MBS ordered the killing of an American journalist. And then there was the former president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. During the Trump administration, President Duterte went on a brutal extrajudicial killing spree. He ordered the murder of thousands of people he claimed were suspected drug dealers without any trial, without any due process. Duterte was right in the middle of that campaign of bloodshed when President Trump praised Duterte for what Trump said was an unbelievable job on the drug problem. So, yeah. But Trump gave Duterte more than just praise. He also gave him highly sensitive information about U.S. nuclear submarines off the coast of the Korean Peninsula. According to a transcript of a call between Trump and Duterte in April of 2017, the two leaders were discussing the North Korean nuclear threat when Trump told the Filipino strongman about two active nuclear subs stationed near North Korea. We have two submarines, the best in the world. We have two nuclear submarines. Not that we want to use them at all. I've never seen anything like they are, but we, we don't have to use this. But Kim Jong-un could be crazy, so we will see what happens. According to BuzzFeed News, defense officials were livid about Trump's disclosure, saying, quite plainly, we never talk about subs. That was the first time we learned that Trump had spilled secrets about nuclear submarines, but it was hardly an isolated incident. That same year, Trump held a high-level meeting to discuss a North Korean missile launch, not in the Situation Room at the White House, but on the outdoor dining terrace at Mar-a-Lago. Trump was dining with the Japanese prime minister when he got the news of the missile launch, and the club was filled with random people who do not have security clearances. And instead of going somewhere private to discuss the missile launch, Trump decided to take the classified briefing with dessert. A Mar-a-Lago club member even posted photos of this classified briefing to Facebook with the caption, wow, center of the action. Yep. That same year, Trump hosted the Russian ambassador and the foreign minister at the White House, which would have been controversial enough on its own had we not later learned that President Trump also divulged highly classified information to those two Russian officials as well. Also that year, Trump went on Fox News and appeared to disclose classified information about a previously unknown CIA data breach. With the CIA, I just want people to know, the CIA was hacked and a lot of things taken. That was during the Obama years. That was not during us. That was during the Obama situation. All of that, all of that took place during Trump's very first year in office. That, that stuff alone was year one. It did not end there. There was a time Trump tweeted a classified drone photo of an Iranian space facility. There was a time he sat down for an interview with journalist Bob Woodward and ended up revealing the existence of a secret U.S. nuclear program. And there was the now infamous moment when Trump allegedly waved around classified Iran war plans in front of Mark Meadows' biographer while demanding that someone bring him a Coke. 
And now, today, the New York Times and ABC News are reporting on yet another instance of Trump giving away America's secrets. According to these new reports, after he left office, Trump gave away yet more classified information about America's nuclear subs, this time to an Australian billionaire. The billionaire is a man named Anthony Pratt, who runs one of the world's largest cardboard companies and is a club member at Mar-a-Lago. According to this new reporting, Trump gave Pratt highly sensitive information that could endanger the U.S. nuclear fleet, including the supposed exact number of nuclear warheads U.S. submarines routinely carry and exactly how close they supposedly can get to a Russian submarine without being detected. According to sources who spoke with ABC News, that Australian billionaire then described Trump's remarks to at least 45 others, including six journalists, 11 of his company's employees, 10 Australian officials, and three former Australian prime ministers. So not, not a discreet person, this cardboard mogul. Now, NBC News has not independently verified these reports, but it appears the reason we're learning all of this now is because special counsel Jack Smith's team has reportedly interviewed that Australian billionaire, that cardboard mogul, and they have put him on a list of 80 witnesses who could testify in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents trial in May, which raises a whole bunch of questions about the evidence Jack Smith has amassed in this case that we don't even know about yet. Joining me now is former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Barb McQuaid, who also co-hosts the Sisters-in-Law podcast, and Devlin Barrett, justice reporter for The Washington Post and co-author of the Trump Trials newsletter. Devin, Devlin, I'm reminded of um, a piece you wrote in November of last year. The headline has always stuck with me. I think we can pull it up now. Investigator, investigators see ego, not money, as Trump's motive on classified papers. I thought of that headline when we learned this news about Trump bragging about nuclear submarines and divulging secret information to ran random cardboard moguls. How do you see this behavior dovetailing with your thesis? So I think to your point, there are examples of this. It's not just one instance. These aren't one offs. This is a thing he tends to do, which is sort of talk about areas and get into conversations with people that the security professionals, the intelligence officials don't want him to get into. I, I will say there's one weird silver lining in some of this. And to go back to the point you made about him waving around the Iranian document, as far as we can tell, he often gets de significant details wrong here. So one of the in conversation, I mean, so one of the strange elements of this whole situation is that. This incident could obviously be used as evidence of intent and potential harm by Jack Smith in a trial, but it also may not necessarily be chargeable if the information he's relaying to people isn't correct. That's so ironic that you can actually count on the information somehow being wrong, and therefore it's not as much of a security breach. I do have to ask you, though, I mean, as a reporter— the instances of Trump giving away secrets, I mean, these are just the ones we know of. There were so many in the first year in office. This behavior continues in his post-presidency. It seems like, Devlin, it is impossible for us to truly have a handle on how much he is talking out of turn. Right. I mean, and you see, you know, so much of his public persona is just sort of, for lack of a better term, riffing. 
And for someone who gets the presidential daily brief, you know, for years and years, you know, riffing can be quite dangerous or problematic. Um, but that's what he does conversationally. You can see many examples of this. And so obviously there is a significant concern here. And, and to your point, there are 80 people listed as potential witnesses in this case. You know, you have to think about what are the odds that this particular Australian is the only person who is going to tell a story like this about private conversations with the former president? Yeah, that's exactly right, Barb. I mean, the fact is we're learning about this person because of Jack Smith. And he has a list, 80 people long. We know about some of uh, we have sort of breadcrumbs. But what is the fact that this anecdote has not been relayed before? It has been kept under wraps. It wasn't in the indictment. What does that tell you about the strength of Jack Smith's case, at least as we can ascertain that from the outside? Yeah, I think this is just one example of many pieces of evidence that we're going to hear about at the trial that are not currently known. Uh, this this story that we've heard about from this Australian billionaire sounds to me like the kind of thing that would be offered under a rule of evidence n- number 404B. And that says that the prosecutor may bring in evidence, even though it does not relate to the charges in the indictment, if it can prove things like intent or modus operandi or uh, acts, a mistake of or, uh, absence of a mistake. And so for that purpose, it could be that they want to hear this story from this Australian billionaire and maybe others about the way Donald Trump would be very reckless in handling classified information, because that would tend to prove that he was very reckless in handling the documents with which he is charged. Can I ask, though, one of the things Jack Smith declined to do was pursue a dissemination charge, Barb. And the fact that he is, whether, you know, with malign intent or not, the fact that he is, in in fact, disseminating this information to random, you know, cardboard moguls, why not pursue a dissemination charge if you're Jack Smith in the DOJ? Yeah. So, you know, prosecutors have to think about, number one, can I file this charge and prevail? And number two, should I file this charge? And so it is absolutely a crime to verbally disclose classified information. And we don't know all the reasons, but I can tell you some some things that could be at play here. Number one, uh, when there is an oral communication, it is much more difficult to prove because you have to prove that what the Australian billionaire heard is accurate that he is reporting it accurately, and that it was, in fact, classified. And so it may be that Donald Trump was making it up. Maybe he was puffing. Maybe he got the facts wrong, as we heard here. Um, The other thing about it is, if they need to prove that up, they might need to prove up that those facts are true. And if they are classified pieces of information, it may be that the government is more concerned about safeguarding that information than it is about winning any particular count. There were times when I was working as a national security prosecutor, when I had cases or counts I wanted to bring, but the intelligence community put the kibosh on it and said, no, it just isn't worth it because we can't reveal this classified information to the public. So you're just going to have to let this one slide. Um, To that end, Evelyn, um, you know, Trump has access to this classified information once again as part of the discovery process in the Mar-a-Lago trial. He wanted to have a SCIF, a secure facility, effectively set up at Mar-a-Lago, which would have been ironic since that's effectively the crime he's being charged with, having classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Do you have a sense of the degree to which that classified discovery process is proceeding? We know that the judge ordered a number of sort of safeguards 
for Trump in this process or safeguards against Trump sharing this discovery information um, in, as part of the discovery process? Is it going uh, is it is it chugging merrily along? How would you say the, the CISA process, sorry to use the uh, acronym, is, is working in this case? So there's one complication that we are aware of so far, and that's that some of these documents, about nine of them, are considered so sensitive or the originating agencies consider them so sensitive that they have yet to find a good location to store them in Florida. So part of now that the Trump lawyers are making the argument that this dynamic is a reason why they need to push back some of the court deadlines in this case. But it gives you a sense of how meaningful some of these documents are, that the agencies who made them don't even want them kept in the state of Florida. There's about five of them that they want just to stay in D.C., but they're trying to find essentially a military or intelligence base in Florida where, where they feel comfortable that it's safe enough to put them there. And that just speaks to a lot of what we're talking about, which is that some of this stuff is just very, very sensitive. Barb, we know that Judge Cannon has effectively put litigation on hold while they basically, while she considers Trump's motion to delay this case, this trial till after the 2020 election, 2024 election. Can you explain what is going on here and how optimistic you are that uh, Judge Cannon will abide precedent or the law or how sympathetic she may be in terms of Donald Trump's defense? Yeah, I think this issue is going to be a good test of her impartiality. You know, she's come under some fire uh, based on some prior rulings that she's made that are favorable to Donald Trump. But but here, uh, you know, is Donald Trump entitled to more time? I think we need to know more facts about this and how long it's going to take for them to be able to review these few sensitive documents that Devlin has discussed. But the idea that they need a little extra time is not measured in days or weeks, but six months. They have to go from May all the way till past November. That strikes me as just a bridge too far. And so I think that uh, we will be looking to see whether she asks pointed questions, whether she determines exactly how much time they need and whether it needs to push that trial date. And then if so, you know, in increments of 30 days, 60 days, not six months. Hmm. What's, what happens after November of 2024? Hmm. Barb McQuaid, <laughs> Devlin Barrett, thank you both for your time and reporting and analysis and wisdom. I appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. We have lots more ahead tonight, including Ron DeSantis. His poll numbers might not be rising, but his height might be. Hmm. We'll have more on that coming up. But first, new details about Trump's gilded Manhattan triplex. Look at that thing, the one with the gold toilet. I don't think you can see it in that picture. And how all of that played into an alleged scheme to deceive lenders. That is next. Stay with us. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. 
Today, a New York appeals court rejected Donald Trump's latest attempt to delay his civil fraud trial, allowing it to continue full steam ahead next week. And now that we have wrapped week one of this trial, we have some riveting new details, courtesy of Trump Organization Comptroller Jeff McConney, who took the stand and admitted that the valuations of Trump's properties were fraudulent, not by accident, but by design. Now, we have known for a while now that Trump was allegedly inflating the value of his apartments and his golf courses and so forth. Attorney General Letitia James presented that evidence to the judge in this trial, who has already found the Trump Organization guilty of fraud. But today we were given a detailed look at the extent to which the Trump's business to which Trump's business hyped the value of his properties. And it is staggering deceit. Take Mar-a-Lago. Last week, Judge Angoran ruled that the Trump that Trump had inflated the value of his beach club by a whopping twenty three hundred percent. According to Trump's financial documents, Mar-a-Lago was worth between $426 million and $612 million, all based on the, premises, on the premise that it could be sold as a private residence. Now, today we learned that that was a complete farce, and that is because the deed for Mar-a-Lago clearly states it can only be used as a social club. And if Trump can't sell Mar-a-Lago as a private residence, then it would likely be worth a whole lot less to the tune of 18 to 27.6 million, according to Palm Beach County's appraisal. And then there is Trump's iconic Rococo apartment in Trump Tower. Yesterday, prosecutors asked McConaughey about the value of that very shiny penthouse, which at one point was, according to Trump, worth $180 million. And yet, a similar Manhattan apartment with extras, including a waterfront view, and which was allegedly owned by a foreign royal, that similar apartment was more than $100 million cheaper than what Trump valued his at. Now, Mr. McConney, the Trump Organization Comptroller, claimed his $180 million estimate was based on square footage and that Trump's blindingly gold apartment was so expensive because it was 30,000 square feet. But that estimate, according to the judge in this case, is also an obvious lie. Trump's triplex is really around 10,000 square feet, which is, by the way, thousands of feet smaller than the similar apartment worth $100 million less. Joining me now is Christy Greenberg, former federal prosecutor and former deputy chief for the criminal division of the Southern District of New York. Christy, thanks for joining me here. I mean, there is like exaggeration and then there's just bold face lying. Were you surprised by the, the audacity of these inflations? Well, this was laid out, a lot of this was laid out in the judge's order last week. And it's interesting because there the judge said, look, this is a documents case on that one count on just the perpetual fraud. It's a documents case. This is plainly false. Just given the magnitude of, of these numbers and how different they are, this is egregious. And you used these documents in business. So therefore, you know, you're, you're liable for that other count. But now we're getting into at the trial, other counts, insurance fraud, falsified business records, falsified financial statements. And there you have to show intent to defraud yeah. and that these are materially false statements that somebody, whether it's a lender, insurer, would have relied on them to give them favorable terms. 
And, you know, they're this defense that, that they are peddling, which is, you know, well, valuation, it's an, more of an art than a science. It's like, right. well, but this is math. Like, these numbers don't add up. They're, right. they're nowhere close to any of the other appraisals that are comparable. Like, it can't be the case. And, and it seems like they, they're going to have an expert say that, that there's no such thing as an objective valuation because, and therefore, you can never have an intent to defraud with the valuation, which is just, it's ludicrous. Yeah, well, especially when you're saying, Oh, this this Mar-a-Lago is worth so much money because it can be sold as a private residence. And the deed says that it can never be sold as a private residence. Right. Right. And then you have that's where you have the judge saying we're in fantasy world here. We're not yeah. in real world where deeds don't matter, where, you know, the, the, the square footage doesn't, you know, it can be inflated by, you know, 10,000, 20,000 square feet where we're objective you know, numbers aren't aren't uh, being calculated properly. Like it's just it, it's it defies logic. I do wonder there's um, a, a brand premium that they attach to the value of some of these properties yeah. saying because it has the word Trump on it, it's worth 30 to 50 percent more. Now, that seems more fungible, right? Like, depending on what year of Trumpism we're talking about, the maybe it's worth more before the presidential election than it is after the fact. Is that something where there's any merit to the argument that the name matters the na- and, and the inability to peg a specific value is not inherently fraudulent or pegging a specific value to it is not inherently fraudulent? Well, I think the issue there is when you have a singular property and he's playing both sides of it. So when he's talking to the IRS, that property all of a sudden has a low value so that his liability goes down on taxes. But then that same property, when he wants to get a favorable term on a loan, is a high value. So you can't have it both ways. I do wonder also if the reality of what's happened to Trump properties, which are basically distressed assets at this point. I mean, there's videotape of people taking the the name Trump off of buildings across the country, whether that reality comes into play here, right? Is that something that that the prosecution could actually could argue or is that too subjective to be admissible in a court of law? Well, here they're looking a at a 10 it, year, yeah. a 10 year period that went up till 2021. Yeah. So, yeah, we're at that point where there was certainly a backlash and maybe that kind of thing is considered again. I do think there's something to it, that there is some wiggle room here that, you know, when you look at some of the appraisals, yeah, they're off by by some magnitude, but not to hundreds of millions of dollars, which is what they were doing. And it's clearly very intentional. That's what the testimony at this trial is revealing that. He wanted to inflate his assets to appear to be more wealthy so he could be on the Forbes list. I do want to ask you, because today, I believe um, the appeals court has basically halted the judge's order to cancel the business certificates for some of Trump's New York companies. Trump's saying this is a massive victory for him. The attorney general's office is saying we were always fine with this there. We have not lost anything here. Who is right? Yeah, it's just a stay. That means we're just delaying this for a while. They, I mean, essentially, let's let the trial play out. The trial is has liabilities to these six claims, as well as, you know, additional trying to figure out what the disgorgement is, what what ill-gotten gains are going to be clawed back, what penalties apply. And this seems to be 
you know, along those lines of trying to figure out, you know, what what the penalties that apply would be. So I think it makes sense to state. It seems like a solid decision. Um, it's certainly not a win for him. It just kicks the can down the road a little bit. Well, when your only tactic is delay, I guess that <laughs> might seem like a win. Christy Greenberg, thank you for deciphering all this financial madness for me. I appreciate it. Much more still ahead tonight. Now that Kevin McCarthy has been given the boot, who is Donald Trump's next top pick for speaker? And speaking of the boot, just what was going on with Ron DeSantis and his footwear when he was on Bill Maher? We're going to talk about that next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. Okay, so you could be excused for forgetting that there is a presidential race underway in this country right now and that approximately 12 Republicans are still vying to become their party's nominee. You could probably even be excused for forgetting that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was at one point supposed to be the formidable conservative challenger who was going to give Donald Trump a real run for his money. And that's because Governor DeSantis's campaign has given no one a run for their money not even a light jog for their money. Right now, in an average of polls, support for DeSantis stands at 14.7%. That is down from upwards of 40% back in January, which is just a shocking waste of money and resources, given that DeSantis has spent many millions of dollars since he announced his candidacy and has really only sunken lower and lower in the polls. And that's sinking may have something to do with the, how shall I put this, the lifting that seems to be setting the internet on fire this week. Social media theorists believe that Governor DeSantis is now wearing some sort of secret heel concealed in his footwear in an attempt to look just a little bit taller. Now, NBC News has not confirmed this. NBC has not even investigated it, but it's a compelling theory. If you look at all the posts, I will say that his motivation here is historically grounded. Americans like tall presidents. Every single president since Jimmy Carter has been 5'11 or taller. Donald Trump is 6'3. Biden is six foot. DeSantis is maybe, I don't know, 5'9. We don't know for sure. No one seems to know for sure. But here's what Ron DeSantis looked like last year without heels, it seems. And before he announced he was running for president, not super tall, not towering over people. 
But here's a photo taken this February with Tiger Woods. And and boy, does Governor DeSantis look a lot taller. We know that Tiger Woods is six foot one inches because it says so right here on the official PGA Tour website. So could it be? I mean, this is not an insignificant. It's not an insignificant number of inches here. More than a cowboy boot alone could account for. Are there secret heels in Ron DeSantis's boots? Now, as an occasional high heel wearer myself, I will say I find it tricky to take the stairs in heels, which is maybe what's happening here in this video. Could those secret heels be affecting Governor DeSantis's gait? Here he is last week on Real Time with Bill Maher getting ribbed for wearing cowboy boots and a suit. If you ever have problems in California and own Florida, not only do we have no income tax, no vax mandates allowed in the state. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Um, I know, but people do wear cowboy boots with a suit. That's right. So I'm not going to fly. Okay, I, that's, uh, that's just a crazy thing. We're to proud do. of it. Now, listen, if people want to appear taller or younger or more svelte or less svelte or whatever to seem more presidential or more electable, I have no problem with it. Most people don't have a problem with it. In fact, many people, most people even, don't take issue with a man in heels. Except for Governor Ron DeSantis, who has made attacks against transgender Americans a central part of his campaign. He has censored drag performances and pride events in his state. He has criminalized transgender people for using the restroom that matches their gender identity. He has penalized providers who give gender-affirming care. And he has even banned the instruction of sexual orientation and gender identity in public schools. Here is the thing. Governor DeSantis should be able to wear his heels, as should everyone else who wants to wear them, even if it won't make any of them president. When we come back, we'll take a look at what Donald Trump has done to his own party's crop of presidential candidates and how he's consolidated power ahead of 2024. That's next. Governor DeSantis wanted the press. He wanted the coverage. He wanted the news. He wanted the cameras. He wanted the sound bites. He wanted Tucker Carlson. That evening, I actually emailed the chief of police and it said, based on what I'm hearing, it sounds to me like these people have all been kidnapped, that they were all victims of a crime. That was a clip from the brand new MSNBC documentary, Martha's Vineyard versus DeSantis, which premieres at 10 p.m. this Sunday on MSNBC and is streaming on Peacock. That documentary explores a, a heinous incident from September of last year when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was flirting with a run for the presidency. As a political stunt, men, women and children who had just arrived from Venezuela, people who were in this country legally, were lured onto flights paid for by the government of Florida and sent to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts with the false promise of jobs and housing. 49 of the most vulnerable people exploited and endangered so that Ron DeSantis could show the MAGA base how tough he was on immigration before he ran for president. And for what? DeSantis's attempt to win the Republican nomination is absolutely flailing. He is now trailing Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. His campaign is burning through cash. And Donald Trump is hoovering up all the attention around the 2024 election and pretty much everything else. 
Joining me now is Patrick Gaspard, CEO of the Center for American Progress Action Fund and former DNC executive director. Patrick, thanks for being here tonight. Alex, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> the New York Times has a distressing headline for everybody who's been following Trump's exploits and um, alleged criminal behavior, which is that Trump's influence, uh, influence reaches a post-presidency peak. Trump is at the apex of his power. As a creature of politics, I wonder if you can explain how this has happened. Alex, it is an it is an incredibly difficult thing to wrap your brain around mm -hmm. when somebody's been, you know, indicted four times, impeached uh, twice, broken nearly every norm uh, in the country, failed dramatically uh, during COVID, and turned the economy absolutely upside down. And yet, inside of his own party. There's a new permission structure about what constitutes the norm and what's in the center of the party and what animates their aspirations for the future. Yeah. We saw that play out in the speaker's uh, contest recently when they booted Kevin McCarthy for allegedly not being MAGA enough, not being conservative enough. If you look at all of the contestants for the GOP um, primary prize yeah. who get up on that stage, all of them affirm Donald Trump's behavior. Uh, and instead of creating any accountability whatsoever, they doubled down on the notion that he should not uh, have been impeached, that they would have defended him during uh, that moment of crisis. Uh, they seem to have turned a blind eye to the sins of January 6th. Yeah. Uh, and none of them, not only do they not attack him for the, the sins that he's been indicted for, but they don't even bring up the attacks that he launches against military leaders in this country, whose assassination he's called for. General Mark Milley. So, so they've moved the goalposts. They've changed uh, what uh, is morally acceptable inside of that party's uh, elite uh, infrastructure. And that gives Donald Trump the path to dominate in a, in a really cultish environment that that yeah, party's oh, become. The other part of it, I think, that's equally distressing is the way they have embraced the cruelty of Donald Trump. I mean, we played that tape of the DeSantis uh, documentary because it's so exemplary of a man who believes that using human beings as pawns isn't a liability, but a strength. Showing people that you can deny them their own humanity is a strong man's defense for why he deserves even more power. And that to me seems like a very staggeringly bad development in Republican politics. Is it, is, is, <laughs> And yet none of them have been able to wield the cudgel of cruelty as effectively as Donald Trump. Why do you think Donald Ron DeSantis? I mean, why do you think Donald Trump has been able to dispatch with all of them so expeditiously? Well, one, you can't out MAGA, the King Kong of MAGA. And, and, and let's remember something, Alex, when you run for the presidency, particularly if you're running as an early front runner. All eyes are on you all the time. And the people you come across on the trail have to have the impression that you actually enjoy being around them. Whereas the governor of Florida treats voter contact as if it's a communicable disease. He does not enjoy it. He seems to have an allergic reaction to it. And people and people feel that. But here's the thing. You just went through a litany of extremist actions that Ron DeSantis has taken on. Here's why it actually matters in the, in the numbers that you just put up there. The things that he did in Martha's Vineyard actually redounded against him yeah. in New Hampshire. Let's look at this. Back in July, when uh, he enjoyed 26 percent of uh, the support of mo self-identified moderate Republicans uh, in New Hampshire, 
He was ahead of Donald Trump uh, in the state of running. You're almost neck and neck in that state. Now, that 26 percent of moderate Republican support for him has plummeted to 6 percent. The same is true uh, nationwide. If you look at the track of the Quinnipiac poll, when he was trailing Trump nationally by only six points, he was dominating him with self-identified moderate Republicans. Guess what? Those people are actually turned off when you attack young people, you treat uh, education uh, as, you know, a pawn in the culture wars. When you attack Mickey Mouse and you chase Disney out of uh, your state to the tune of a billion dollar loss to that state, when you attack vaccination, when you attack this notion of the things that kept us safe during COVID, self-identified moderate Republicans get turned away from you. And there are enough of them in that party that one could have created a counter coalition against Trump. Instead, they're not looking towards Nikki Haley. They're looking towards Scott. They're looking at Chris Christie and Moderate Republicans are starting to move back to, to Joe to Donald, Biden. Well, to there it is to Joe Biden, who they're go, who's going to uh, all of this will benefit him in the fall of next year. Let's also remember that uh, Republican women were repulsed by the Dobbs decision of the Supreme Court. Yep. And this governor from Florida has signed a six week abortion ban right. in Florida. Folks pick up on that. They're repulsed. By well, it. and Donald Trump has not quite figured out how to talk about the radicalization of his party on women's uh, on reproductive concerns more broadly. Joe Biden, nine billion dollars in student loan forgiveness this week. Yep. Jobs report shows three hundred and thirty six thousand jobs created or grown in September. Not a bad week. Uh, if you're no. President Biden, you're getting ready to go up against that clown show uh, on the other side. They can't even That's maintain their majority Patrick. in Congress. Clown show. Patrick Gaspard, <laughs> thank you for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. We have much more this evening, including Trump's top pick for House Speaker and why it is up to moderate Republicans, we just talked about them, to stop him. Michelle Goldberg joins me on that coming up next. I, I'm, I'm actually kind of amazed sometimes that people keep asking this, but of course I talk to the president all the time. I talked to him, like I said, I talked to him last week. On January 6th, did you speak with him before, during, or after the Capitol was attacked? Uh, I'd have to go. I, 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 I spoke with him that day after, I think after. I don't know if I spoke with him in the morning or not. I, I just don't know. Uh, I'd have to go back and, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, that when, when those conversations happen, but um, uh, but uh, what I know is I spoke with him all the time. That was Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, unable to answer the question of when he spoke with President Donald Trump on January 6th. Jordan defied a subpoena from the January 6th House Committee so he wouldn't have to testify about it. And now he is the chair of the House Weaponization Committee, spearheading the so far futile effort to find evidence of political insiders using federal power to punish conservatives. Congressman Jordan is also attempting to interfere with the investigation into Trump's effort to overturn Georgia's election results by launching a congressional investigation into the DA down there, Fonnie Willis. And all of that has helped Jim Jordan secure the backing of Donald Trump in Jordan's bid to become the next Speaker of the House. On Tuesday, today on Truth Social, Trump gave the congressman his complete and total endorsement. House Republicans are meeting next week to decide whether to put Trump's guy in charge, which is why, as Michelle Goldberg points out in her latest op-ed in The New York Times, it is now up to moderate Republicans to save the House, if only they can muster up some bravery to do so. Michelle Goldberg joins me now. Michelle, thanks for being here. And the question oh, is, if not now, when, moderates? If not now, when? I mean, 
What is this the moment? Do you are you optimistic? I mean, no, I'm not optimistic. And the reason I wrote the column was not because I actually think that this is likely to happen, but because A, it's what should happen. And it's actually, more, I think, a more reasonable ask than what we heard from both Republicans and a lot of pundits in the last few days, which is why didn't Democrats save Kevin McCarthy? There's been a lot of hand-wringing that kind of Democrats didn't step up and save this speakership in exchange for a very explicit guarantee of nothing whatsoever. You know, Republicans, moderate Republicans, which is a relative term, wouldn't even have to vote for Jeffries, right? I think that if you had moderate Republicans come up with some sort of, you know, relatively moderate candidate, they could make a deal with Democrats and they would sort of be in the catbird seat, right? All they need to do, they we're not, you know, they, they don't have to do, they don't have to vote for someone from another party. They don't have to vote for someone who disagrees with them on all the major issues. In fact, what they could do is find someone who basically is one of them and elevate them. But again, I don't hold out that much hope of them having the courage to exert the same sort of political power that kind of Gates and his faction have tried to exert or have exerted. Do you think it's a purely a matter of the terror that would be inflicted upon them by the far right MAGA base of the House Republican Conference? Because politically speaking, they're on pretty solid ground, right? I mean, if you're a moderate Republican looking for a more consensus candidate, you're going to have Democratic support in the House. There are a lot of moderates in the House. And like when you go back to your Joe Biden dominated swing district, it probably works out well for you. So is it just yes. the threat of the, the tweets and the Fox News hits? I don't know what it is besides just kind of pure cowardice and kind of a milquetoast orientation to politics. But you're absolutely right that these, you know, you have a bunch of Republicans, not a bunch, but a fair number of Republicans, certainly enough to swing the House, that come from districts that voted for Joe Biden, you know, sometimes by double digits. And so they are not going to presumably want to be going into 2024 with a House led by this you know, kind of pit bull for Trump figure, Jim Jordan. But I mean, yeah, that's what's so I think, but this has been something that's been confounding throughout the Trump years is the inability of people to stand up to them, even when it's in their own evident political interest. How how much, Michelle, do you think Trump's suggestion that he might have to unify the conference by becoming temporarily, of course, Speaker of the House, <laughs> how much do you think that that's going to inform the ultimate election of a new speaker? I mean, I don't think that that was ever like very likely, even. And and I actually think that that would have been in some ways the best thing that could have happened to Joe Biden, because if Donald Trump had been Speaker of the House, it would have he would have been a sort of incumbent and it would have reminded people every single day what it was like to be ruled by Donald Trump and people like him less the more they see of him. I do think that there's going to be it's still hard for me to see how Jim. I mean, you know, we live in a in a, in a dark timeline. So maybe Jim Jordan becomes the speaker. And certainly I would imagine that Donald Trump's um, endorsement is just positive for a lot of people. But it's still hard for me to see how this caucus unifies around any of these candidates. Do you and I, I, I don't myself either. I also don't think Trump will be the next speaker of the House for however long. But I wonder if he radicalizes the sort of um, the party in a way, just his sheer presence encourages them like the Pied Piper to march towards the music. Well, I think it might encourage people, some people to march towards Jim Jordan. And, you know, again, 
Kevin McCarthy was a kind of slavish lackey of Donald Trump. But, you know, as we know from the last few years, things can always get worse. And kind of Kevin McCarthy had other um, priorities or other agenda items in mind besides just serving Donald Trump. Whereas I think Jim Jordan, we would really see the House become completely a subsidiary of the MAGA movement. It can always get worse. We will leave our viewers on that note this Friday evening. <laughs> Happy Mich- Friday. Yeah. Michelle Goldberg, thank you for joining me tonight. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. That is our show for this evening. 